Good morning, church family. And as I get set up here, on behalf of the pastors and our wives, we are grateful to the Lord for this church family. I've been here 23 years, going on 24 years, and the Lord has been kind to my family and to our families. Thank you for praying for us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for being there for us. It's a great honor and privilege to serve you. It's a great honor to serve you all. So we're grateful to God for you. We pray for you. We love you in Christ. So thank you for your kindness to us. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Father, we're grateful for this time. Lord, we're in a season of the year where we give thanks to you, and we do give thanks to you. But Father, help us to give you thanks, not just one day a year, but every day of our lives. Lord, we're grateful that we have this opportunity to come before you to worship you in spirit and truth. Lord, we have sang your word, we have prayed your word, we have taught your word, and now, Father, we pray you would help the preacher to preach your word. He realizes apart from you, he can do nothing. Lord, give us listening ears. Give us your spirit, O oh God. Fill us with your spirit. Lord, if need be, convict us of sin and point us to the beauty and the majesty of worth and worth of the Lord Jesus Christ all over again. Help us not to leave this place unchanged and unfazed. But Lord, help us to go forth from this place saying it was good, so very good to hear the word of God. In Christ we pray, amen. What does the word grace mean? If you ask 10 people, you might get 10 answers. But how do you define grace if it comes from God and it comes from heaven? How do we define the grace of God? Well, if you are a hardworking individual and you put in a a hard-working day, you worked eight hours, at the end of eight hours, you've earned a wage. If you're an athlete, maybe a soccer player, a football player, and you're competing against another team, you're competing against an opponent, you're competing for a prize if you win. Maybe you're a hard worker, You've been at your job for 20, 30, 40 years, and you should receive an award for all your hard work and service. But what if you can't earn a wage? What happens if you can't earn a prize? What happens if you can't earn an award? Yet you receive a wonderful blessing, a gift that you don't deserve? Why? Because you have no capability of achieving any of that. Well, that's a good picture of God's unmerited favor, which is the grace of God. That's how you define grace, the unmerited, unearned favor of Almighty God. There's nothing you can do, there's nothing I can do to earn it. It's a gift from God. We are in Luke chapter 7, starting 
in verse 36. There's lots of verses to cover today, but today's message is entitled, Love Much, Forgiven Much. Love Much, Forgiven Much. Really, today's story is a wonderful story. It should be your story and my story. It's a story of grace. Grace coming from heaven, grace coming from God, down to a person who doesn't deserve grace. But that's how grace works. Grace is received by one of the most unlikely people in all of biblical history. And the main point that I want to get across today is this. Sinners are not forgiven by personal deeds. Sinners are not forgiven by personal deeds and personal works, but by God's grace in Christ Jesus. If you don't get anything else from today's sermon, I hope you would leave this place saying, I understand grace a little bit better. God's grace in Christ Jesus. And why should we listen to today's sermon? There's some of us, if we're to be honest, that love to do the traditional thing in America. We love to check off the religious box off of our to-do list. It's good to go to church for some of us. And so you're here and you may not know God's grace. You may not know the Lord Jesus Christ. God has created you for his glory. He's given you gifts and talents that you use for yourself. You use your time for yourself. You use your wages for yourself. You use your rewards for yourself. You use everything that God has given to you as a blessing for yourself. You use it for your own glory. You actually see no need of Christ. You see no need of grace. So at the end of your life, you will give an account to the Lord for all that God has given to you, for all that God has blessed you with, the Lord will require an accounting from your life. So it would behoove you to listen to the Word of God today and challenge yourself to think biblically, to act biblically, and if need be, cry out to God for a brand new heart. Because unless God gives you a brand new heart, you will never think biblically, and you will never act biblically, and you will never do the things that God has called you to do as a husband, as a father, as a wife, as a mother, as a worker in the world, for the glory of God. Your motivation is really your own selfish desires. Therefore, what you need is a new heart. You need to cry out to God until he gives you a new heart. Wrestle with the Lord until he gives you a new heart. And if the Lord is merciful, which he is merciful, you'll be changed forever. Your life will never be the same. There's hope for you. And so you may be asking yourself, really, is there hope for me, Pastor Ola? Because you don't know my background. You don't know what type of family I grew up in. You don't know my secret sins. You don't know how many people I've hurt in my life. There's hope for you. There's hope for you. The real question is this. Will you submit to the word of God? Will you submit to the authority of the king? Will you honor Jesus as the Christ, as the Lord, and as the Savior? That's the question before you today. But there's other of us who've received God's grace 
when we have no, when we had no ability at all to earn God's grace. To earn God's grace is actually antithetical to the biblical definition. God has given us grace in spite of ourselves. God saved you in spite of your wickedness and your evil and your sin against the holy creator, the God who created you for his glory. That should show you the grace of God. That in spite of all that, instead of giving you judgment and hell, he gave you a gift that you didn't deserve. I didn't deserve it. And we praise God for that. And if you're a Christian today, praise the Lord for that. For his grace to you. Maybe you're at a point in your Christian life where your zeal for the things of Christ, your zeal for God, your zeal to live for God, your zeal to evangelize has waned. It's slowly fading away. But I want to remind you today of what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. And my hope and prayer today is that when you are reminded of God's grace in Jesus Christ, it will help you to live another day, another week, another month, another year for the King. Because He's worthy. My hope and goal is that you would grow in grace, mature in the faith, and grow in your love, not for Pastor Rolo, which would be a nice benefit, by the way, but that your love for Christ will grow for the glory of Christ. So our background today in today's text is really 36, 37, and 38. Those three verses set up this entire story of grace. We have a Pharisee in our text today, if you understand Pharisees, the best way to describe them is they're legalists and traditionalists. They're very zealous and strict about Old Testament laws and Jewish tradition. They're a very influential and important group when it comes to politics and religion during that time frame. And the Pharisee that we see in our text today, his name is Simon. So this is not Simon the Apostle. This is not Simon the disciple of Jesus. If you start thinking that way, as we go through the text, you're going to get lost. This is Simon the Pharisee. Simon the Pharisee. We obviously have Jesus. We have a woman. And then we have a general group of people at a dining room table. And verse 36 gives us the exact location of this dining room table. It's in the house of the Pharisee. It's in the house of the legalist. It's in the house of the traditionalist. And Simon the Pharisee has invited Jesus to come into his home to have a meal. And Jesus happily accepts the invitation to have dinner at his home. And he invites other guests as well, and they show up. So Jesus shows up, and he takes his normal seating, if I can say it that way. Back in those days, they didn't have tables that were three to four feet off the floor with nice cushioned chairs. That is Western or European methods. But actually in that culture, you would have a table in the middle of the room, maybe one foot off of the ground, no chairs, and the normal seating position is really a line position, which you would lean over on your left-hand side 
reach over with your right hand, grab the food, put it in your mouth. And so everybody's heads were towards the tables. Everybody's feet were towards the walls. That's how they eat dinner. Actually, pastors and brothers, maybe we should try that one time during the monthly luncheon. So that is where they're at in terms of the location of this dinner. And so everybody shows up. Everybody's having a meal. Everybody's conversing. And then there's a very particular person who walks through the doorway and all eyes are on this one person. Luke, the gospel writer, the physician, if you know anything about doctors, they're very meticulous. They're very good at recording. And Luke records every movement, every step of this woman who's in this house. And the Bible describes this woman as a sinner. One who breaks the law of God, one who violates the will of God. A sinner. And this sinful woman hears about Jesus, goes to the legalist's home, the Pharisee's home, and she brings something very important with her, an alabaster flask of oil. Alabaster is a very precious stone. And what you would do with this precious stone is you would hollow out the inside part so that you could pour precious ointment or oil into the alabaster as a flask. And it would usually have a long neck. And you would only use it in special occasions. And so this woman, who's described as a sinner, brings this alabaster ointment to the dining room table. Many scholars believe that expensive alabasters would have expensive perfume, and many times that perfume would come from a plant, a very exotic, rare plant from northern India. And if that's the case, then the person who would purchase that type of oil would require one year's salary. They would have to save one year's income to just buy this perfume to put it into the alabaster flask. And so when this woman arrives and all eyes are on her, she does five things that Luke records. And she does these five things to show her respect in honor and love to Jesus. One, she's standing behind Jesus at his feet. That is a posture of humility. That's a posture of respect. And remember, Jesus is lying down. He's eating a meal. The second thing she does is she's weeping. She's weeping so much that there are so many tears that it wets the feet of Jesus. Weeping is a sign of brokenness, a sign of contrition, a sign of desperation, a sign of pain. She's weeping and weeping and crying and crying. The third thing that she does is she wipes the feet of the Savior with no cloth, no towel, no help. She's wiping the feet of the Savior with her own hair. Shows the poverty of this woman. To have nothing but her own hair to wipe the feet of the Savior. 
The fourth thing she does is she kissed the feet. She kissed the feet so much in public that she did it nonstop. Shows her love for Christ. And the fifth thing that she does is she anoints the feet of Jesus with this expensive perfumed oil or ointment to show honor. Again, all eyes are upon this woman. The question becomes, what is Jesus going to do? And so Simon the Pharisee is witnessing this interaction between Jesus and this woman, and it presents a major problem. Not for Jesus, but for Simon the Pharisee. Because all he can see is that the Old Testament law and Jewish traditions are being broken. He does not see a woman broken by her sin. That's all he can see. Is the law and the traditions are being broken, but has no regard for the brokenness of this woman. So verse 39 presents the problem. Read with me. Verse 39. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him, referring to Jesus, saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. The Bible's clear that she's a sinner. Jesus knows she's a sinner. Simon the Pharisee and the entire City probably knows that she's a sinner. And so Jesus is associating with somebody, according to their tradition, that she should not associate with. This woman is wicked. This woman is evil. This woman is sinful. And Simon the Pharisee is thinking to himself, no prophet of God will allow this to happen, would allow this to happen. No prophet of God would allow this to happen. And if we read the text carefully, he, referring to Simon, the Pharisee, said to himself. We all know, we all know the old cliche, right? You can talk to yourself as long as you don't respond to yourself. And so we see Simon speaking to himself, and Jesus knows it. Is that amazing? Jesus is reading his thoughts. So if you think you can hide your physical sins from other people, that's probably true, but you can never hide your thoughts from the Christ. He knows exactly Simon's thoughts because he is God. Jesus is God. So what is Jesus allowing to happen? Defilement. Defilement. According to the Old Testament law, in Luke 7, we see an account of Jesus, remember, touching the stretcher of a young man who is dead. And by simply touching the stretcher of a dead man, Jesus is considered defiled according to the law in Numbers 19, verse 11 and verse 16. You remember in Luke chapter 5, Jesus touched the leper. Jesus could have easily said, be clean or be healed. 
But Jesus does the thing that, according to tradition and the law, he's not supposed to do. He actually touched the leper. And according to the law, Leviticus 14, 46, Jesus is considered defiled. Now in Luke 7, 38, we see this woman of the city, a sinner. To have that title in biblical language, a woman of the city, is not a positive connotation. It's a negative connotation. Many scholars believe that she's a prostitute. But this sinner is touching the feet of the Savior. She's weeping. She's crying. She's wiping his feet with her own hair. She takes out the alabaster oil, expensive oil, and touches his feet again and anoints his feet. And so Jesus, according to their traditions and according to the law, Jesus is defiled. To be defiled is to be a sinner. The two go hand in hand. To be defiled is to be a sinner. That's true for everyone. That is true for every human being ever on planet Earth, but that does not apply to Jesus the Christ. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is holy. Jesus is perfect. As a matter of fact, Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And hear this, yet without sin. Without sin, no defilement. Without sin, there is no defilement of Jesus. Jesus is the perfect, spotless, meaning no sin, Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is Jesus, the Christ. However, Simon the Pharisee, after seeing this interaction with Jesus and the woman, he actually thinks the opposite, that Jesus is defiled. Because according to Simon's tradition, Simon's culture, Simon's background and upbringing, Simon's view of the law, he says this, if this man, Jesus, were a prophet, paraphrased, and he's not, by virtue of associating with this sinful woman, he would know who this woman is and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. Why? Again, she's defiled because she's a sinner. A prophet, I've said this once, I'll say it a hundred times, a prophet is one who comes from God, represents God to the people. He has a message delivered to his people through the prophet. And so the prophet proclaims God's word, and the prophet demands obedience from God's people unto God. But the problem is this, that Pharisees believed in a form of separate, separationism. In other words, the religious elite are never to associate with the lowly. The professional religious people are not to go down to the level of those who are wicked, evil, and hurting. There's a separation. 
And so Pharisees believed in that. Do you remember last week I talked about a very conservative Jew that I met at Naval Chaplain School? We called him Rambo Rubin. And the reason we called him Rambo Rubin is that every time there was a problem, the solution to the problem, according to the military, is humanism, secularism, psychology, psychiatry, nothing that could deal with the soul. But Rambo Rubin would say, the people need God. And I say to that, amen, the people need God. But I saw this type of separate mindset, the religious people separated from the ordinary people. I saw that with my own eyes, with Rambo Rubin. We're out in the middle of Boston, Massachusetts. We're looking at a, a ship, and a lady comes up to him and introduces herself and wants to shake hands with him, and he does this. He says, I can't shake your hand. So I went to the next person. I said, how come you can't shake hands with a woman? Now I'm curious. How come you can't shake hands? He said, in my tradition, we are not allowed to touch the hands of a woman or sinners. Do you see what's happening? There's a separate mindset between those who are religious and those who are sinners. Everybody knows this woman is a sinner. And from Simon's point of view, either Jesus knows that she's a sinner or Jesus doesn't care that she's a sinner. This woman is a social outcast. To be a woman with that type of reputation is a social outcast. There's nobody that truly cares for her and if she is a prostitute, there is no government assistance for housing. There is no government assistance for food. She's on her own. She's exposed to many threats. There's no family to take care of her. There's no home for the sexually abused. She has to fend for herself, and this is the only way she knows how. And for a woman to have this type of reputation and to approach Jesus in a public dinner, by the way, so back in those days, at a Pharisee's home, he would open his home to the community. And anybody who wanted to hear more information or wanted to learn something new, they would go to the Pharisee's home, and the dinner would be open, and anybody could attend. Why? Because somebody's about to teach something to someone. And so this woman risks it all. She goes into the home of the Pharisee to see Jesus. This requires great courage. This shows that this woman is desperate, and she needs help from Jesus. But all that Simon the Pharisee can see is a woman who's a sinner, who's broken Old Testament law and Jewish tradition, he treats her as inferior and subhuman. This woman deserves judgment from God. Why is she in my house? And this Pharisee does absolutely nothing to help this woman. Is that surprising to us? That a Pharisee does nothing to help the people? If we read our Bibles, we know that's common for its time. 
Because Matthew 23, 23 says this, Jesus goes after the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, which is what? Justice, mercy, faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Jesus explains to his disciples in a crowd, and he addresses the scribes and the Pharisees, those who have influence, those who have influence in politics and religion and in the synagogue. And he calls them hypocrites. Why? Because they preach supposedly God's word, but they don't practice God's word. They tie heavy burdens, hard to bear. They lay them on the shoulders of the people. But they themselves are not willing to move their finger to help them at all. And then, verse 23, Jesus talks about Old Testament tithing. Old Testament tithing should be an expression of compassion and care for those who are in need. For example, those who are dependent on the financial resources of others, like the Levites, the orphans, the widows, the sojourners. Yet the Pharisees, what they neglect is the most important things, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These Pharisees are known for their legalism and traditions, but the thing that they lack is compassion and care. I want to ask us a question. Are we more like a Pharisee? Are we more like the woman in this story who's desperate for Jesus? Because if we tell people in our care for them regarding evangelism, we tell them the law, the law, the law, the law. And then we tell them the law, the law, the law, the law. And we give them no grace. That just destroys a person. Because all you're doing is telling them, you're heading for hell, you're heading for hell, you're heading for God's judgment, and you deserve it, you deserve it, you deserve it. We're just like Pharisees if we don't tell them the grace of God in Christ. It's okay to tell people they're sinners. Because the Bible says it. But we need to tell them about grace. The grace of God in Christ Jesus. Help them run to the cross. You know, in God's strange but kind providence, He has each and every one of us where He wants us right now. Whether we like it or not, that's beside the point. If you're in the medical field, you're there for a reason. If you're in the legal field, you're there for a reason. If you're in the education field, you're there for a reason. If you're in the aviation and transportation industry, you're there for a reason. If you're a mother who's taking care of your sweet children, don't ever buy the Kool-Aid of the world saying your job is not valuable. Your job is valuable to God. And if you're taking care of your children, you're raising them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Praise God that God gave these children godly parents versus being raised in a heathen home where wickedness and evil prevail. 
But when we think about where God has us, God gives us opportunities. And if all we do is tell them that they're in sin and never tell them about God's grace, we're no better than the Pharisees. All we are is modern-day Pharisees. Where's our compassion? Where's our care? If we look at people as inconveniences, as stressors, as people who suck our times from our busy schedules, and we look at them as numbers, not as human beings made in the image of God, we're no better than Pharisees. We need to be more like this woman who's humble, who sees her need for Christ. I want to encourage us, if that's us, may we all repent. I want to encourage us to think biblically, act biblically, and react compassionately, and care for others. We must tell them about God's grace in Christ. So what does Jesus do? He's our example. What does Jesus do? He does the exact opposite of the Pharisee. So if we could ever figure out what Pharisees do and who they are, do the exact opposite of the Pharisee. And that's what Jesus does. He associates with the lowly. He associates with the broken. He associates with the widow. He associates with the orphan. He associates with those who are in need. That's Jesus. That's our Jesus. The compassionate Jesus. He associates with those who are broken. So Jesus is not concerned about being defiled because he cannot be defiled. He's concerned about the salvation of this woman. The eternity of this woman. And then verse 48, all the way to the end of our text, we see Jesus doing something amazing. He's teaching about God's grace and forgiveness. And he does it in a way that only Jesus can do. Verse 40 says this, And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. You ever notice he doesn't say, Say it, Lord. Say it, Savior. Say it, my king. He says, Say it, teacher. Verse 41, And a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom the, he canceled the larger debt. I'm sure he was hesitant in that answer. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then verse 15, he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The question that Jesus presents to Simon the Pharisee 
And Simon's answer reveals how Simon looks at Jesus, Simon's view of Jesus. He doesn't look at Jesus as the Savior. But Jesus quickly turns this question into a teaching moment on what is grace and what is forgiveness. And he uses this analogy of the moneylender or a creditor, right? We understand what moneylenders are. We live in Las Vegas. They charge like 300% in Las Vegas. But he uses this analogy of the moneylender with two debtors. One owes 500 and the other owes 50. And so we understand creditors, they're for business or for-profit businesses. They exact interest from the debtor. But this first debtor who owns 500 denarii, that's a lot of money for that time. One denarius is equal to one day's wage of work. So if he owes 500 denarii based on a six-day work schedule during that time frame, this first debtor owes two years of salary or income to the moneylender. Debtor number two owes less. He owes 50 denarii or 50 days of income, maybe two months. We'll round it up. But Jesus says both of these debtors could not pay back their financial debt to the moneylender. So what does the moneylender do? He cancels their entire debt, both of them. Doesn't matter if it's 500, doesn't matter if it's 50. He cancels all their debt. And it's for their benefit. And this is a lesson on grace. A lesson on grace. The question to Simon is this. Now, of these two who have been forgiven, which person is going to love the money lender more? And so, Simon the Pharisee is the one who's been forgiven much. He says, for whom he canceled the larger debt. That's the obvious answer. And another way to say it is this. The one who owes a debt they can never repay and is completely forgiven of all their debts is the one who will love more or much. Here's a simple way of thinking through this. More debt, more forgiveness, more love. But the opposite is also true. Less debt, less forgiveness, less love. So Jesus affirms Simon answer, Simon's answer. He says, Simon, what you said, your thinking is biblical. Your logic is biblical. Your decision-making is biblical. Your conclusion is biblical. What you're saying, Simon, is correct. And then Jesus goes on the offensive in verse 44. He starts chastising Simon. He turns to this woman in compassion, and he says to Simon, even though he's looking at the woman, he says to Simon, Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and she has done something for me that you should have done. She did three things, and you did not do these three things for me, but she did. Verse 44, 
You gave me no water to wash my feet. When a guest would come into a home, the person who washes the feet of the guest is the lowest person in the family or the household, normally a servant who would do this menial task. says, you gave me no water to wash my feet. Jesus goes on and says, you gave me no kiss. During that culture, a kiss at the door is a kiss of welcome, a kiss of greeting. You kiss on the cheek. It's a peck on the cheek. He says, Simon, you didn't do that. He goes on to say, you gave me no oil for my head. You didn't anoint my head with oil. So in that culture, when you receive a guest, there's a proper way to do so, which Jesus just alluded to. But yet Simon the Pharisee neglected all of these things, which is surprising. And so Simon sees Jesus strictly as a teacher, not as the Savior, and even more, less than a guest. And so what's implied here? What's implied is this, Simon, you identify yourself as a Pharisee, you're strict, you're legalistic, you have Jewish traditions, you should know all these things, but you're not a very good Pharisee. This woman is known by all in the city as being a sinner, and guess what? She recognizes her own need for forgiveness, and you being a religious professional don't even see your need to be forgiven. You don't see it. Have you ever noticed that religious professionals are really good at exposing other people's sins, but not their own sins? They trivialize the grace of God. They bring their sins down low. It's minor to them. It's no big deal. That's what Simon the Pharisee is doing. And the Lord chastises him. And then Jesus explains forgiveness in verse 47. He says, woman, you are forgiven. Woman, you are forgiven. This woman, probably throughout her entire lifetime, has committed thousands upon thousands upon thousands upon thousands of sins against her creator, against God. The Bible says her sins, which are many, probably so many sins you can't even count it. If you had the most sophisticated calculator in the world, you'd probably run out of digits before you can count all those sins. But yet Jesus says, all your sins are forgiven. Your guilt is removed. The penalty of breaking God's law is removed. You are wholeheartedly forgiven of all your sins in the past and all your sins of today and all your sins of tomorrow. You are forgiven. This woman who was estranged from God because of her sinful lifestyle is now reconciled back to God because of grace. Praise God. Think about this. How was she forgiven? It's because she gave Jesus money? No. It's because she went to the synagogue? She wouldn't even be allowed to go to the synagogue. 
Her reputation precedes her. It's because she was religious? No, the Bible says she was a sinner. She didn't earn God's forgiveness. It wasn't because she was crying and wiping the feet of Jesus and anointing his feet. It's not because she brought an expensive flask of expensive perfume. It's not because she was kissing his feet. She didn't even ask or beg the Lord for forgiveness. It's not because of good deeds to others. It's not because she loved much. It's not because she loved Jesus is the reason for her forgiveness. It's not because of that. It's because of God's grace. Grace comes from God. Grace comes from heaven. Grace comes from heaven to man, to the sinner. There's nothing that a sinner can do to earn God's grace. And to earn God's grace is antithetical to the biblical definition of grace. Unearned, unmerited favor from God. Grace came to this woman. She could not receive a wage. She could not receive a prize. She could not receive an award. She received something that she was incapable of getting. Grace. Grace. We sing about that all the time, but do we understand God's grace? If you remove sin from the biblical definition of grace, then you will no longer appreciate God's grace in Christ. Grace is special. Grace is amazing. Grace is sovereign because we understand our sin and what we deserve. If you remove sin, you will not appreciate grace. She never asked Simon the Pharisee, how does the Old Testament law in Jewish tradition help me receive forgiveness? She never asked that. I want us to be very clear on this. God's grace is the basis, is the foundation for forgiveness, is the foundation for loving the Savior. It's not the other way around. You don't love Jesus first and then you receive grace and forgiveness. That's not how the Bible presents it. No, God gives grace first. God changes the heart. The sinner turns from their sin, trusts in Jesus Christ with all of their heart. Guess what? At that point, they've received forgiveness by God. So we live in a country, we live in a world that if you'll just love God, you'll be forgiven. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that. If you will love God. 1 John chapter 4 is very clear. God is love. God is love. Not that we love God first, but that God loved us first in Jesus Christ. The only reason we love God is because God loved us first. So when a person doesn't see this, he'll downplay his sin. He'll downplay his guilt. He'll downplay his penalty. 
He doesn't see his need for Christ. And what's the result? If you make less of sin, then you will love Jesus less. If you make much of sin, then you will love Jesus more. Because you understand what you deserve. And praise God that he doesn't treat our sins as they deserve. He gives us grace. When it comes to grace, and when it comes to sin, Charles Haddon Spurgeon says this, quote, I am afraid that there are many professed Christians who must have had very little forgiven them for they love Christ very little. So he's making this analogy. He looks at the people of the church in the 1700s and he says, these people love Christ very little. Why? It's because they see their sin very little. And this seems to be the age of the little love to Christ. This is Spurgeon being comical to some extent. We are told nowadays what a little thing sin is and what a little place hell is and what a very short time the punishment of sin will last. So he's saying that the culture of that time downplays sin, downplays hell, downplays judgment. And he says everything is according to scale and it must be so in religion. And here's the key. As you diminish the guilt of sin, the punishment of sin, you also diminish the sense of obligation and being saved from sin. Consequently, you diminish our love to Christ. So the question for us today is, do you love Christ little or do you love Christ much? And how you answer that is completely dependent upon how you look at your sin. Do you need Christ or do you not need Christ is the question. If it's little, it's because you see your sin as little. If it's much, it's because you love Christ very much. You receive grace instead of judgment. And then verse 48, Jesus says to this woman in public, just in case Simon the Pharisee missed it, your sins are forgiven. One of the greatest blessings that any human being can ever receive in this life prior to heaven is the blessing of God, the blessing of forgiveness, this side of heaven, before they die. All their sins are forgiven. All their sins are forgiven. Are your sins forgiven? Is it all of them? Or is it some of them? Because if it's only some of your sins are forgiven, you're in a world of hurt and you don't even realize it. My encouragement to you is run to Christ. Run to Christ. Don't walk, don't crawl. If that's the only way you can get there, then praise the Lord. But if you can run, run to Christ. He's the person that you need. And then in verse 50. Jesus says, your faith, meaning your trust, your hope, your alliance, has saved you, go in peace. Her entire hope is not in the law. Her entire hope is not in tradition. Her entire hope is not in what the community can offer. Her entire hope is in Christ, in the person and work of Christ. 
And because of that, she's been saved from the wrath to come. She's been saved from God's judgment. And therefore, Jesus says, Go in the blessing of peace, because all your sins have been forgiven. Imagine that. Every, if you committed a thousand sins, a thousand sins have been forgiven. If you committed a hundred thousand sins, a hundred thousand sins have been forgiven. If you've committed one million sins, all one million sins are forgiven. Praise God. Only God can do that through the Lord Jesus Christ for those who repent and trust in Him. And I would even argue from a biblical position that this faith that this woman had doesn't come from within her own heart, but it comes from outside of her, above her, from heaven, from God down to her. Her faith is a gift from God, which is exercised in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because dead people can't create believing faith. Spiritually dead people are spiritually dead people. They have no ability to create faith. That's a gift from God. And when this woman was forgiven, and Jesus declared her forgiven completely, the people of the dining party said this, who is this? Who is Jesus? That he can even forgive sins. In other words, only God can forgive sins. The people didn't recognize Jesus as Savior. Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's the only mediator between God and man. So if you're not a Christian, one of the things I want you to take away from this sermon today is this. You need Christ. Whether you realize it, whether you admit it, whether you acknowledge it or not, you need Christ. Because why? Don't you want to be forgiven of all your sins? Don't you want to receive that blessing? If you don't think you're a sinner, the Bible has much to say about that. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You're a sinner whether you admit it or not. And you need Christ whether you admit it or not. Don't you want to have all your sins forgiven? Don't you want to hear from your Savior, all your sins are forgiven in me, in Christ? Don't you want to hear Jesus say, go in peace? See, the way that people live their lives today is they take whatever they're doing sinful, it is whatever the sin habit is or sinful tendency is. And the reason that people are in this vicious cycle of doing it over and over and over and over and over and over again, the primary reason is because they've never been forgiven. But once you are forgiven, do you still struggle with that from time to time? The answer is yes. And what Christians like to do is, I need something to appease my conscience. And they'll fill everything in this void with everything besides Jesus. They're trying to find peace in all the things of this world, in all the things that the world offers. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, everything else this world has to offer. But the peace that people are actually needing is the peace that only can come from God through Christ. Christ. 
When you know that your sins are forgiven, there's a true peace there. There's a true peace that's come from God. And God has provided a way for all the sins of those who repent and trust in him. God has provided a way for their sin debt to be completely canceled. Praise God. Praise God. I want to encourage you, turn to Christ. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to encourage you with this. There's a story of a general that went to John Wesley. He's an English theologian and evangelist in the 1700s. And the general came to John Wesley, and the general said, I will never forgive, and I never forget. And John Wesley replied with this, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Because those who don't sin don't need to be forgiven. But if you have sinned, you actually need to be forgiven. So when sin, when we sin against our almighty God and King, there's grace for us. I'm talking to Christians right now. Many times, we don't do the things we're called to do per God's word is because we don't know that we're forgiven. We're actually fearful. We're the child that runs away from their loving father when we sin. But yet the loving father says, come back to me. Come back to me. I'm a merciful God. I'm a loving father. Come back to me. You have my love. You have my peace. You have joy in Christ. I've canceled all your sin. I've canceled all your sin debt through the cross of Christ. And I want to encourage the brothers and sisters in Christ with this closing verse. Psalm 103, verse 10. Referring to God. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions and sins. If you're in Christ, you are forgiven by God. Praise the Lord. God's love is upon you now. God's love is upon you right now. Be encouraged, dear brother and sister. Sermon in a sentence. The only reason we love God is because God first loved us in Christ Jesus by his grace. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this time. We heard a challenging and hard word. Father, would you forgive us if we've been more of a Pharisee in our lifestyle as opposed to being a person who's broken and humble. Father, we thank you that you are our gracious God and gracious Father. Thank you, O oh God, that you forgive us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, O oh God, for all that you've done for us. O oh God, remind us day to day that we are your people by your grace through our Savior. And all of God's people said, Amen.